Well, we are returned today to our second sermon in the sermon series entitled Patriarchs and Promises. And so I do invite you to open up in your bulletin to page 5. You'll see that there is a map, which I think might be helpful to you, as well as some reflection questions on the next two pages. Um, In our sermon series, we seek to dig a little bit deeper into one passage rather than looking at themes. And so um, I do encourage you to not just open your Bibles, but take this with you and reflect upon what we're hearing today. Uh, Most scholars view today's reading in Genesis 26 as an interlude. Uh, It's a technique used in modern-day television series. You've probably seen how this works. You start out with an action-packed first episode on Netflix or Paramount or whatever you're you're looking at. Leah and I are watching The Mandalorian uh, right now. It's a little bit late, I know, but that's kind of how we roll. And uh, we're trying to do that to relax after the kids go to bed. And The Mandalorian's this Star Wars figure, and it starts out, of course, with this riveting... um, this riveting episode, and then we have flashbacks explaining his being um, uh, taken from his parents in, in the midst of a, a great uh, tumultuous war. The empire has invaded his home planet, and his parents hide him, right? And you get snippets of this throughout the rest of the first season, explaining who he is. Well, the Bible does the same thing. It's a literary technique actually, that's very old. And we see that going on here, most scholars think, because we see that Isaac and Rebekah travel away to Jarer, and there's no mention of Esau or Jacob, who of course were the central figures at the end of last week's sermon. So, see what I mean. Open up, if you would, to Genesis chapter 26 in your Bibles, or take a look at the order of service. Uh, Genesis 26 is printed there as the first reading. And let's look at this flashback in their lives. Now, remember, last week... We opened up with the miraculous birth of these fraternal twins, Jacob and Esau. Isaac, their father, and Rebekah, their mother, had been promised that from them, as Abraham's seed, would come forth a child of promise, right? A child of promise. And they waited for some 20 years, Rebekah being barren, Scripture tells us, before that's fulfilled. And all of a sudden, miraculously, after much prayer on Isaac's part, Rebekah conceives and she bears these fraternal twins, Jacob and Esau, and they wrestle in her womb. Right? And so we get the, the picture of what's going to be going on for the next ten chapters in Genesis. That from, from, from Rebekah... And Isaac is going to come two nations, two nations. The people of God, the kingdom of Israel from Jacob, the one son, and the kingdom of Edom 
and other kingdoms from Esau, the other son. But Jacob is going to be special. And you remember that Jacob deceives Esau into selling his birthright. So in this flashback today, we're getting a little bit of information as to uh, Rebekah and Isaac's marriage. Look with me at Genesis 26, verses 1 through 3. Now there was famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For you and your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. So all of a sudden we're taken probably back in time here to this time of famine. And if you know this area, and you can look down around Beersheba in the lower uh, left uh, quadrant of the map there on page 5, you'll see where this is going on or where we think it was going on. This, this time, this part of the land was very reliant on the rains. And so there were famines. And when you know, a famine would come, it was usually not just food, but the lack of water. Right? Remember, these are herdsmen, and so you have no water, you can't water your flocks, you don't have a bank account in this day, right? and you don't even have usually you know, a barn, but you've got a bunch of flocks of, of sheep and other animals. You have no water, you have no food, you have no money, you have no livelihood, and everything falls flat. So you can see the threat that a famine is. right? It's not like you can just go down to the local giant eagle and pick something up because your garden failed. Right? This is truly a threat to Isaac. But Isaac follows the Lord's lead and sojourns among the land of the Philistines of all people. Archaeology and history tell us that the Philistines mentioned here are probably not the Philistines that come up later in the Bible. Because uh, the, Philistine people, the, the Philistines are the Greeks that come up in the time of King David. They're actually Greeks that were over in um, this part of the Holy Land. But way back here, there's another group which is referred to as the Philistines because they're in their area. And we've run into this group of people before, back last year, when we were going through this story with Abraham. Do you remember the name Abimelech, right? You're probably thinking, well, I'm having deja vu. I've heard this before. And yes, you have. You have heard this before. But it's a different story and Scripture is very intentionally trying to teach us some lessons here. So back in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham encountered Abimelech, and we have a very similar story. If you're scratching your head um, and thinking, boy, I've heard this before, that's why. So Isaac travels here with Rebekah to the land of Gerar for relief from the famine. And the Lord tells him not to go down to Egypt, but to rather persist and sojourn in this land where he's going. Now, what's the Bible telling us by repeating this story that looks a lot like the story with Abraham? That's, that's what we're going to be asking ourselves today. You've got to do a little bit of work with this passage, all right? It's not straightforward. So, stick with me. I promise you I'm hotter than you are. <laughs> and ask yourself... What is the Bible 
teaching us here. The first lesson that I would take from this is that the patriarchs are far from perfect. The patriarchs are far from perfect. You know, in contrast with the mythic heroes of some of the other, you know, the Greeks, for example, or the Sumerians, or, you know, you read some other ancient tales, the heroes are are completely perfect and strong people. Our patriarchs are actually very flawed as the people of God. But look, this passage does say that Isaac is at least partially obeying the Lord. And more importantly, Scripture tells us that God chooses people not because of their uprightness, but because He loves them. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, we read the Lord saying to Egypt, to His people who have exited Egypt, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So it's really interesting that in all three of these passages, and yes, there are actually three iterations that follow this same pattern. Back in Genesis 13, Abraham sojourns to Egypt and deals with Pharaoh. In Genesis 20, Abraham sojourns from famine to Gerar and deals with Abimelech. And now here in Genesis 26, Isaac journeys to Gerar and deals with Abimelech. We'll call him the second because he's probably his son. On all three of these, the Lord blesses the patriarchs despite, despite their imperfections. Notice, look what Abimelech orders after discovering that Rebekah is actually Isaac's wife in chapter 26, verse 11. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall be put to death. Now, all three of these men, that is Pharaoh, Abimelech I, and Abimelech II, in these stories are morally superior to God's chosen patriarch. Do you not see that? They're morally superior to God's chosen patriarch. Way back in Genesis 13, Pharaoh comes and he confronts Abraham, saying, why are you passing your sister off your wife off as your sister. Don't you know that it's against God's law to take another man's wife? And we see that again with Abimelech I, who's given this vision from God, saying, don't you know that this is punishable by death? And then we see it here in Genesis 26, with the king ordering death to anyone who were to touch this wife of Isaac, Rebekah that is. And so we see that moral superiority is not as important to God as covenant promise. And I think that's something that we need to hear again and again as Christians. Yes, we're to strive to be holy. Yes, morality is important. But it's not by morality that God chooses you. 
It's by His love and His grace alone that He chooses you to be a child of promise, an adopted son or daughter of God. And that's good news. That's good news. Because if it were up to our morality, if it were up to our being fit for the kingdom of God, we would have no hope of our own strength. That's the first lesson I see in today's text. The second lesson is that, that fear and cowardice often rob the children of God or the children of promise. Fear and cowardice often rob the children of God or the children of promise because that's exactly what happens with Isaac and Rebekah. Look at Genesis chapter 26 again. And notice, we start out with a promise that God gives to Isaac. What we just read, I won't read it again, it's so hot. But the Lord says to him, to sojourn in this land, I'll just read verse 3, and I will be with you, and I will bless you, for you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father." So before Isaac and Rebekah even start to sojourn, the Lord gives them this promise to hold on. I will be with you. Now scholar and commentator Gordon Wenham makes the point that this is the first time in Scripture that such a promise is issued from God. That's really substantial. That this is the first time in Scripture that God says to someone, I will be with you. He doesn't say that to Abraham. He says the rest. But he doesn't say this particular part. And yet the very next part of the story, Isaac, does he turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I trust in you because you're with me. You will protect me. No. What does he do? He turns to deception. He turns to deception and cleverness, his own cleverness, his own devices. Look at verses 6 through 8. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister, for he feared. And if you're an underliner or highlighter, underline that. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Why? Does he go through this deception? Fear. Fear. And it's not even fear for Rebecca's sake, notice. It's the worst kind of fear. It's self-centered cowardice. Self-centered cowardice. He feared not that Rebecca would be killed, but that he would be killed. Scholar Alan Ross writes this. He says, Where faith is weak... People cower in fear and offer and danger the work of God. Here is where Isaac comes in. The narrative teaches Israel and us, says Alan Ross, to be strong in faith in order to live in obedience to God's laws rather than to act shamefully out of our own fear. So what's the opposite of fear? To be strong in not obedience, but faith. For it is the faith that gives us the power to be obedient to God. 
But if we're acting and being motivated by fear, our faith is not controlling us. Our faith is not driving us. Verse 6 shows that Isaac actually didn't have any reason to be afraid. So Isaac settled in Gerar. And then we look again later on in verse 8. When he had been there a long time, it's not like anyone was beating down his tent door to come take his wife. This was all in his head. But nevertheless, Isaac fears, and it causes an unnecessary shame and distress between he and his wife, between Isaac and Rebekah and their neighbors. You know, the Bible's not saying that it's always wrong to be deceptive. It's not saying that it's always wrong to be clever. That's not it at all. We see lots of instances in Scripture where God instructs his people to be clever with their enemies. But Abimelech and his people are not their enemies, at least not right now. They're not their enemies. And yet Isaac, in his fear, has taken these people to be their enemies and is treating them as such. Do you see the problem? And of course, that's on top of not relying upon God in his faith. So Isaac's fear causes him to be a poor witness. It causes him to be a poor witness for his faith, for the covenant, for his God, because he's afraid. And so, you know, King Abimelech comes to him and he's like, what's the deal, dude? Why are you passing off your your wife as your sister? Scripture says that he looked out and he saw them playing together. It's actually, you can translate it fondling if you really want to. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a play on words there. It, Basically, King Abimelech looks out and sees Isaac and Rebekah, and they ain't acting like brothers and sisters are supposed to act. Right? And unfortunately, because of this deception, there's damage done. Not just between, Jake, or not just between Isaac and Rebekah and King Abimelech and his kingdom, but between Isaac and Rebekah themselves in their marriage. Again, this is one of those passages where you have to do some work. But consider, if we've just seen Jacob and Esau last week as agents of their parents, one loving one more than the other in favoritism, being pitted against each other and using deception, where do you think that deception comes from? Why do you think Scripture has placed this here? It shows us that there is a division in Isaac and Rebekah's marriage. And it's because of that 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 sin affects their children. I don't think that's too long of a stretch to say, although Scripture doesn't say it outright. The Bible here is pointing us to see that cowardice and fear leads to faithlessness, which leads to strife. It leads to strife. This world that we live in gives us ample opportunity to be intimidated and afraid, doesn't it? Sometimes we make it up in our own head. Sometimes there's good reason. But in the midst of that, Jesus says as a, in our Gospel, follow me. Follow me. In Jesus Christ, you are more than any of the patriarchs. You are not just a child of promise, but you are a son and daughter of God. 
And if God was with Isaac and Rebekah, how much more is He with you, dear friends? You have no reason to fear. As Christian, you have no reason to fear. As Jesus says in today's Gospel, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And those are bold words, but they're from our Lord. We also read in Scripture that He has not given us a spirit of fear and that love casts out all fear. There are patterns in our lives, friends. Patterns of fear and faithlessness and patterns of faith and trust in the Lord. But sometimes it takes us taking a step back and looking at those patterns. So let me ask you, where are the patterns of fear and faithlessness in your life? Where are they? Are they there? I can answer for you, yes, because they're here in me. Whenever we turn away to our own ability, to our own strength, rather than turning to God, we're going down that road. We're going down that pattern of faithlessness and fear. There's a song that was sung to me when I was very little, and I sing it to my children. Um, it's called Ruach, and I believe the, the verse comes from Isaiah. It's not by might or power, but by the kingdom of God. Not by might or power, but by the kingdom of God. Are you choosing might and power? Are you choosing your own ability over your trust in God? And this can be in any situation, right? It can be whenever you're confronted to speak the truth of the gospel and witnessing to those around you. Now, I know that's hard. Sometimes it's really hard with family and friends and coworkers. But friends, don't go down the path of fear. Go down the path of faith. St. Timothy must have struggled with this. And I take courage in this. Because St. Timothy is written to by St. Paul as a young preacher and bishop in our epistle today. Look at the first Timothy epistle, chapter 4, verse 14. St. Paul writes to this young man, do not neglect the gift that you have. What else does St. Paul prescribe to him? Not just as a Christian, but as a preacher. What else does he prescribe to him? Look, this is on page 3 in your order of service, or chapter 4 in your Bibles. Verse 8, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way.